Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray, and this is episode number 18. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by fellow Baptist and church historian, Abby Tyler Todd. Abby is the pastor of the Haynes Creek campus of First Baptist Church in Covington, Georgia. And in this episode, we talk about the failures and successes of the Baptist denomination and the pivotal role creeds and confessions have in the church today and what it really means to be a gospel-centered student minister. We seek to answer questions like, how does the gospel shape our understanding of church history? Are the creeds inherently Catholic? And was Jonathan Edwards just a crusty old Puritan? (laughs) This and much more is covered. In this lengthy discussion between Abby and I, a conversation that's fueled by history and a passion for the gospel. I love this dear brother in Christ, and I'm sure you'll grow to love him too. Today's show is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, inspiring lifelong discipleship and helping readers make a deeper connection with God's Word. To find out more about the Christian Standard Bible, go to csbible.com. Now, for Abby Todd. My name is Abby Tyler Todd. Um, back home where I'm from in Owensboro, Kentucky, uh, the Tyler is important because there are two other Abby Todds uh, back uh, where I'm from. Abby Dale Todd, my dad, and Abby Udale, uh, my granddad. And so back back where I'm from, I'm Abby Tyler. Um, and uh, so that's whenever I write or uh, put my name on things. Uh, to this day, I, I generally still put Abby Tyler Todd. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I, my my wife is Kelly Beth Todd. Uh, she's from Southern Illinois. We met in my hometown of Owensboro, Kentucky. Uh, we've been married since August fourth of two thousand twelve. So we'll have our five year here not b- before too long. <laughs> um, and uh, more importantly, or just as importantly, um, I we are the parents of twins, um, Roman Tyler Todd and Ruby June Todd, and they're, they're quickly approaching nine months, uh, here, here next week. So, uh, we're, we're pretty, we got a full house and, uh, my wife, I am, uh, I'm the, uh, I guess the, the student pastor at Zor Baptist Church where we live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, and we've been here roughly two and a half years. 
Uh, and my wife is actually a part-time adoption consultant hmm. uh, and works a lot with adoption. She's actually a, uh, um, a counselor. Um, she wants me to give the name Christian adoption. Con- oh no, she doesn't. She's <laughs> it's what, what you need to know is that my wife is passionate about adoption. Actually the, the Lord used our adoption uh, and is using our adoption, not only as a means for the gospel, but um, to really, I, I feel like um, stir um, a passion for um orphan care and adoption in our own church and in our own community. Uh, and so, uh, Gabby's or, uh, Kelly is actually doing a, just a fantastic job, not only raising, uh, twins while I'm at work. Um, but, uh, she actually helps other people, um, kind of replicate our story and, and begin their own story, um, every day. And so it's, 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 a, it's something that she's, my wife and I are both proud to say that we do. We we both do what we love. Hmm, that is so. so awesome. Let's. Um, I I just kind of want to. I want to sing your praises just a little bit because I think you are in a unique in a unique position because I know you have an extensive um, educational background and you have a master's in theology and in divinity and you're working on your doctorate too at New Orleans uh, Baptist. Um, so um, let's just talk about that and talk about what. Uh, what has, I guess, driven you to pursue these, uh, pursue these degrees? Um, my story, in fact, uh, ironically, I just, I just, uh, recounted my story in a, in a blog post last night. Um, I, I was not on the course to go to seminary and be a pastor until, um, after college, um, mm. I am, I'm, I graduated from the university of Kentucky with an economics degree. Um, and I was pre dental. Um, so I, I went to college. In fact, I, for a time I even worked in a dentist office in college. Uh, my uncle is a dentist. Uh, my, my, uh, cousin is a dentist. Um, there are times where my granddad still tells me that I'm going to be a dentist. So, I, <laughs> um, so that was my track for a while. And then God, used um missions and um mission trips specifically to change my heart and draw me um into kind of a a ministry career and so once that happened and once key people that he put in my life were pointing me there uh, i discovered that there was a, a phenomenal seminary uh just two hours from my home called southern seminary in louisville kentucky and um i actually I did my MDiv in two and a half years, uh, and I did my first two years commuting to seminary twice wow. a week. Wow. Um, and I did that because I, um, I, I was a full, I had a full time job working at a ragu factory, um, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, we're we're passionate about our spaghetti sauce in Owensboro, Kentucky. Um, <laughs> and uh, I worked in as a as a maintenance assistant, and they paid me very well. Uh, and more importantly, they, they were flexible with my seminary hours. Um, and so I went into seminary really not knowing anything about really what I wanted to do. I was very, very, very uncertain about whether I wanted to be a pastor. I just knew I wanted to teach people about the Bible. And I knew enough about Southern to know they took the Bible seriously. Um, but I was the guy my very first semester. Um, and of course, I, didn't, I wasn't a part of campus life. Um, and so I really just came in on my own. 
I remember having two notepads in class. One was because I didn't even I didn't even have a computer. Uh, I didn't even take notes in class with a computer yet until my second year. Um, I, I had one notepad for my for my notes, and then I always had a little notepad for terminology because I had to learn all the terms on my own. Mm. Um, and that was names. Uh, I remember that in the same day in the same class, I I, I wrote down the names Mark Dever, um, and I wrote the I wrote down Kevin DeYoung. I had no idea who they were, but people talked about them, so I would go home and Google them. Um, and, uh, I remember writing down the word Christology, uh, and ecclesiology and eschatology in the same class. It was in, uh, Greg Allison's, uh, systematic three class. And, uh, I, I had no, I, I honestly thought eschatology had something to do with escalators. That's what I thought. <laughs> that is not a joke. Uh, so, uh, I say all that because it really was an education in so many senses for me. Uh, and I would just encourage anyone. I, I actually had a pastor about six months ago uh, whose son wants to attend Southern Seminary, and and he and the he, once I talked to him and his son, his it was there was kind of this intimidation factor, as maybe what I'll call it. He thought he just wasn't ready for that level. I guess I, I don't. Uh, and this kid's bright, uh, and I told him, man, look, nobody had less of a clue than me. Um, and so that uh, once I once I graduated, uh, of course I um, I met my wife. Um, we started dating just before I started seminary, uh, and of course we're married uh, while I was in seminary. Um, and then eventually we moved to, moved to Louisville, and uh, I became actually was fired. I was fired at my first job in Louisville, Kentucky, three months before my wedding. Um, and I was a, I was a refrigerator salesman, uh, because sales jobs in in seminary are some of the only jobs other than pastoral ministry. If you can't get a pastor job, sales jobs are some of the best because they're the only ones that really work around your schedule. Mm -hmm. Um, and I grabbed it, whatever I could. Well, they found out very quickly that I couldn't sell refrigerators, uh, (laughs) and they fired me. And, um, that was actually, um, yeah, actually I'm correct. That was a month before. Uh, our wedding and then uh in the long story short um fast forward and i graduated with my mdiv and by that time i had my first pastorate um and i was pastoring a a non-baptist church it was a christian church but they had had a, a line of baptist preachers before me they really it was it was a rural church with an older congregation they really didn't care about names so much you know they were kind of that good old just preach from the bible kind of church um and so i took that job and in and, and that pastorate and it was in outside of bardstown kentucky um and then during that time i started my master's of theology um and that's where i really discovered my love of history that's um, i have my thm in historical theology um and that's really where i started my uh, road to jonathan edwards uh which is I'm sure he'll make his way into this conversation somehow. <laughs> yes, so. I'm sure he will. <laughs> yeah. um, well, that's awesome. I'm so glad to hear kind of uh, part of your story. Now, before I, I want to jump ahead really quick. So you're serving at Zor and sort of kind of explain, um, explain what you're doing there and kind of how God is using you in that church. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a big one that I left out. How in the world did we end up in the swamp? Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, we um, at that church that I pastored, <clears throat> Chaplain Christian Church. Um, it was an it was very um, obvious to me after about a year that um, we loved the people there and they loved us. Um, but that was uh, and there's not an, not as much time to really go into the history. But that is actually what they call a restoration movement church. Um, really began uh, with with uh, the Campbellite movement. Uh, Alexander Campbell, uh, the Christian Church, is uh, I guess cousins with the Church of Christ and the Disciples of Christ. Uh, there was a split with Disciples of Christ uh, many many years ago. Uh, but really, the Restoration Movement really was spawned in the Second Great Awakening, and today still, in a lot of ways, embodies Alexander Campbell's um, belief. Uh, or aversion to creeds of any kind. Um, And, you know, that's a double-edged sword in so many ways. Um, Obviously, it looks good, but um, G.K. Chesterton once said, uh, never take up a fence post without, never take up a fence without first learning why it was put up. (laughs) Um, And that one really comes to mind when I think about the Restoration Movement creeds and confessions are not necessarily designed to um, keep people out. They're just, they're there to, well, they are, they're there to, they're defend, they're there to defend orthodoxy, uh, but they're also to make sure that we know where the faith is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of without, without a, a rule of order, you know, nothing but the Bible sounds great. Um, <laughs> and the restoration movement really made its bones on, Hey, let's go back to the primitive church. It's just, just, just you know, that that simplicity sounds good, mm-hmm. um, and it, and in some ways, if it is that simple, but uh, we both know that um, two people can look at the very same verse, touting the very same line, and and come up with two completely different conclusions about the Bible. Um, and so, anyway, um, we ran into some situations which in in my view it was kind of like the land of the judges each did what was right in his own eyes um and i i drew some lines and it was it was just very clear um that they were great people don't get me wrong it was just very clear that a couple gentlemen at the church felt that i was too baptist <laughs> um in fact i think that was what they used uh there was one night i was preaching on a sunday night I will, I'm not joking. I was preaching on a Sunday night. I was preaching on eternal security, um, perseverance of the saints, what have you. Um, and, uh, you know, preaching from texts like John six and first John. Uh, and I had a man stand up in the middle of my sermon. Uh, and he said, uh, he said, son, you better check that sign outside the church. It says chaplain Christian, not chaplain Baptist. Uh, and I, uh, I, I was stunned and I said, uh, well, sir, I said, if you can prove that what I'm preaching is unbiblical with this book, um, I'll be glad to recant whatever I've just said. Um, and, uh, I said, I was in sin looking back. I was, I, I, you know, at you as you as well as you know, as well as I do, Brad, seminary doesn't necessarily teach you humility um and so uh i made a lot of mistakes at that church i I don't i don't i didn't malign him at all anyway but you better believe i had a little cocky little attitude uh (laughs) when i said that and uh, proving proving your degree there a little bit yes yes (laughs) and um 
anyway, long story short, uh, he just made a little motion and, uh, his whole family walked out. Um, and, uh, more or less su- suffice it to say he was, the, he was the biggest tither at the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, today if I, and, and as I have gone back, I, uh, I would, I would go back, shake him, shake his hand and give him a hug. Um, but it was very clear that he and he and I did not see eye to eye and that, and it was, and, and honestly, he was probably right in the sense that I didn't need to be at that church. Um, it was, uh, it was very clear we needed to be at a Baptist church. So in light of that, we politely just decided to look for another church and, uh, Kelly and I not having children at the time, uh, we really, we just, we, we, we had, we cut God a blank check and said, Lord, just send us wherever you will. Uh, mm-hmm. and we found the good people at Zor Baptist church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, it says actually in central Louisiana. Uh, we live in Denham Springs. Um, we live about 70 miles from, uh, New Orleans. Uh, and anyway, we just, we, we, we thought it was just an adventure. I mean, we, we thought God was just, you know, so good to send us to a place with so much culture and just, it was exciting. And, we still love Louisiana to this day uh, just for its food and its people. And it's just, it's craziness. And um, anyway, um, so that's where we are now. I'm the student pastor. I had a couple guys from Southern kind of question like, Hey man, you got your MDiv from Southern. You're going to have a THM from Southern. Um, what are you doing? Stepping down from a pastorate and taking a student pastor position. I didn't ever consider it to be a step down. Uh, if anything, my first pastorate really disclosed or revealed to me that I still had a lot to learn. Hmm. Uh, and I thought I could do that best working as a part of a pastoral team. Hmm. Uh, and I, I wanted to be discipled in some ways as a pastor. Um, and so Zor has allowed that in some ways. I, my main discipleship has really happened outside the church from um, a couple of pastor friends in the area. Um, but uh, Zor is where we call home. And uh, I then, after my first year, uh, said, hey, I didn't realize New New Orleans, getting a Ph.D. at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary was never a part of the the plan. Let me let me just tell you that. Um, And because, you know, I came from I came from Southern, which, you know, uh, like the city on the hill, so to speak, that, you know, every which, you know, there's that swagger. It's called the Southern swagger. Yeah, Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I think that I just thought there, everyone else was just kind of not Southern, uh, even though I do think Southern Seminary does stand apart in many ways. Um, I came down to New Orleans and really loved it. Uh, mm. I, I love the people. Um, I think, Brad, um, I think that I, as someone who has two degrees from Southern Seminary, grow, growing up, having grown up in Kentucky, um, Having worked in as an as a long term volunteer in the IMB, um, someone who left Southern and is now at New Orleans, um, someone who's pastored churches in in multi states, I believe I have a very unique perspective of the the Southern Baptist Convention. Hmm. Um, and uh, when I hear things that are written about Calvinism and uh, Russell Moore, what's going on right now, the RLC, and um, you know things like you know. The, the, the decision, the tough decisions that, you know, David Platt had to make uh, regarding the IMB, the, these kinds of, I guess, call them controversial issues, if you will. I, I just, I, I believe that I get to see both sides very vividly. 
Um, and so I thank God for that in many ways because at New Orleans, um, there were things that were taken for granted at Southern Seminary that you just didn't, they weren't up for debate. Hmm. Um, um, it was, there was no one debating it at, uh, at Southern Seminary where the, the Baptists came from. Um, it was the English Baptists. I mean, of course, the Puritans, you know, um, <laughs> duh. Um, and I would still contend that. Um, but in New Orleans, like, whoa, 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 hold up. No, 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 no. It's the Anabaptists. Um, so as a historian, particularly, there are a lot of things that um, I, I, I'm thankful for my for my time at, at New Orleans. Um, it's also shown me that uh, I think that we're all guilty, especially with, and I'm not, this is, this podcast isn't just for Southern Baptists. um, But I think it is pertinent to understand that, especially as young pastors, which I believe the most people watching this podcast are young pastors or people who are younger in ministry. I believe it's important for us to to really hear people before we, uh, Mm. before we label them. Um, and I certainly was guilty of labeling a lot of people. My doctoral supervisor is Adam Harwood. Uh, and so many people at New Orleans just are Southern. They go, well, how are you, how are you, how is Dr. Adam Harwood, your, uh, your supervisor? I mean, he is like a, a staunch, uh, opponent, um, of, of, you know, Calvinistic soteriology. But, uh, you know, it, some people say that and I'm like, you know, I actually, I actually love Dr. Harwood. Um, he's, he's a, a dear brother and someone that I believe has a lot to teach me and has t- taught me. Um, so anyway, long story short, um, I have, uh, come to New Orleans. I'm in my, I'm ending my second year. I'm, I'm about to end my coursework, uh, because I brought in some credit hours from THM program. Uh, and I'm, uh, I, I would like to think that I should have my doctor here in about a year and a half. Uh, I'm writing my, uh, plan to write my dissertation. Uh, begin writing it soon uh, on um, 19th century Baptist Richard Furman. Mm. Um, and so uh, that's in his influences and his legacy. And so um, that's, that's where I, because I love Baptists. I love Baptist history, um, which I think was another strength of New Orleans. Um, so anyway, that's, that's really kind of how we are, how we're here, why we're here. Um, you know, as far as my future in ministry, um, you know, maybe I can come over to West Palm Beach and we can do ministry down the road someday. <laughs> Who knows, man? I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what God has in store for us. So. <laughs> that would be a dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. In light of that, Abby, um, kind of, it's interesting to kind of look back and, you know, see where God has led you and he's led you down this road. All the, uh, I like to say that, you know, God's will is a lot uh, more fractured and broken than we like to think. It's, it doesn't always follow a straight line. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so um, sort of uh, talk about how, how where you are now is, is different than where you thought you would be. I know you said you, you were going originally into dentistry. Uh, you were thinking about being a dentist and now you're a doctoral student in New Orleans Baptist seminary. So <laughs> talk about oh. that, that, way that God leads you down that road? Yeah. Um, I, um, man, uh, and, and tack all that, tack on to all that, uh, adoption, uh, Hmm. tack on, 
you know, youth ministry itself. I mean, come on, man. I never thought in the, in the world, I mean, never did I ever think I'd be a youth pastor. Um, <laughs> and God has really just told Kelly and I that we, we need to just walk and hold his hand and, and, um, and have the faith that, you know, he'll put us where we want. And, and I think more importantly, just as important the testament of, of God's glory and grace is not just that we're here doing great work. It's that we're here doing great work um, and finding joy even when it's hard. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges to ministry, as you know, and um, you know, we've Kelly and I, you know, my, my wife's, one of my wife's, if not my wife's favorite John Piper book is When I Don't Desire God. Hmm. Uh, and uh, Kelly and I are people that really believe that we should be joyful in what we're doing. And when we're not, we need to find out why. And it generally starts with ourselves. <laughs> um, and uh, so, man, I, I think that there's, you know, I, I don't know that I, I don't necessarily think that I thought I was always going to live in Kentucky. Um <laughs> but I certainly didn't ever think that I was going to be a pastor, much less a Southern Baptist pastor. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I just wrote a blog, as I said yesterday, just kind of chronicling uh, my relationship with the Southern Baptist convention. I was, I guess, I mean, if if you can say born into the domination with my mom and my dad. Um, But of course, through circumstances, I was not raised in the Southern Baptist convention, but of course, through the IMB and through mission service, I, you know, missions is really what changed my life, Brad. I think that's if that that is that's very integral to um, any story about me. Uh, has to really take uh, take note of the fact that God changed my heart through missions. Mm. Um, that's why it's so important for me, and that's why we're uh, we do missions every single year, domestic and abroad, uh, in my ministry at Zor and. Uh, uh, anyway, I think that there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of um, traces back. Uh, if we look, if I look back in, into my life, I think God's grace is just over it all. Um, I think, I, I know, again, that blog that I wrote last night was just about how just mired in sin that I was, uh, unrepentant, lost, um, and then God just turned my life around. Um, I think it's also important to note that I was also discipled um, in different ways uh, and have been discipled in different ways by two or three men in my whole life. I still feel like I have mentors today. <laughs> and I think as a pastoral note, um, I don't believe any young pastor should go without having a spiritual mentor of some kind to meet with regularly. Mm, that's important. Um, that's, that's, it's impossible. And here's my problem with a lot of the young reformed and restless movement. There, yeah, um, I have a very odd relationship with that, with the, with the reformed uh, movement, because I, obviously I, as a student of history, I, I love, um, I love what's going on right now with young people and, and, um, but I, it's just in my immediate context, I see a lot of young men who are preaching discipleship, but they're not being discipled or they don't know what discipleship is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think just for your, your immediate audience. And I think that just the, um, 
the, the context of your audience, I think it'd be, it's a good word just to say, man, brothers, you know, we all, I think we all understand that discipleship is not just showing up for Sunday school. Um, and, you know, obviously the, obviously as a, as a new parent, I'm really still understanding what discipleship is. Uh, I mean, we read the Jesus storybook Bible to my nine month old kids. I mean, all right now, all they want to do is eat the pages. So I don't even know if that quanti- <laughs> qualifies as discipleship. Um, I don't know if Sally Lloyd-Jones would like that. <laughs> um, but uh, I just see a lot of these young guys who are into theology and they can tell you who, which sermon is who and which systematic theology is the best, but they're not meeting regularly with spiritual mentors, older mentors who are shaping them in, 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 in their devotion and their piety and their, in their faith. And um, that's, that's a, that's something I'm really feel strongly about. That's actually the strongest and most passionate uh, and busiest part of my ministry is discipling young men and, and, and ministers particularly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that really quick because, you know, I, I feel a special bond with you, Abby, because we, I like, I like to think of it. We are Baptists writing and tweeting in a world of Presbyterians and Lutherans. And I feel like, um, by the way, dude, you are, Hey, it, it is, it is, it is reciprocal, my friends. I, I, not only were you, and you won't bring this up, so I'll bring it up. Not only did you help my wife and I rebuild our home after we were flooded too. Man, I didn't even bring that up. Uh, our home was flooded uh, in August. But not only did you help us, Brad, and your, your, your church, your family help us um, rebuild our home. But, man, you're writing. You and I are writers, brother. We're writers, yeah. Um, and we need, I mean, talking about the Reformation um, and, and, and celebrating the 500 year anniversary this year. I mean, we talk about the printing press. We talk about the Renaissance. Are we not are we not experiencing our own digital Renaissance now uh, with with the with with digital print, um, you know, um, banner of truth and what they do for the Puritan devotionals and, and writings and gospel coalition, what they do for young pastors and yep. uh, majesty's men. I mean, it's just, uh, uh, I think in a lot of ways, this, this, this new Renaissance in Christian writing is what really has brought you and I together. Oh, amen to that brother. And I wanted to touch back on two things that you said because I found them very interesting because I've had the same sort of thoughts myself, which is one um, talking about creeds and going back to that, what you were touching on, on the restoration movement. Why do you think it is that a lot of the times Baptists have an affront to creedal systems? A lot of the, at least in my upbringing, it was, it was, not necessarily restoration movement stuff, but in fundamentalism, um, creeds aren't really a thing. It's not like we're, we're, it's not like we're going through the 1689 or the Westminster or anything like that. And why do you think that is? And why do you think that, um, a lot of times the Baptists haven't, um, you know, embraced those, like some of the, some of our other brothers. Why have some, why is there an aversion to creeds? Yeah. Um, man, that's a, every Baptist has to address that question. Um, one, I, it's, in, it's important to state that Alexander Campbell was a former Baptist. Mm. Um, his dad was, 
a Baptist at one point, um, Thomas Campbell. Um, but I, I think there's a couple things. One, there is a phenomenal book um, called the, Democratiza- the, the Democratization of American Christianity, I believe is the name. It's by Nathan Hatch. Um, and that book, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm citing that book in a forthcoming um, article that I'm writing um, in, for, for a, uh, a brother. Um, but I, Nathan Hatch, uh, in that book, really talks about how the Great Awakening and the American Revolution aren't just a secular movement and a religious movement. They're linked um, they're both populist movements. They're uh, they're both uh, common people. Um, they're both undergirded by democratic principles. Um, you know, for anyone living in late 17th century Cotton Mather America, um, for you to just turn the page and hear John Wesley and George Whitfield gathering a crowd outside and talking about how pastors themselves may not even be saved or have the fruit of the spirit or, and just talking about, um, you know, just preaching a simple gospel to common people without any order. I mean, that's just revolutionary in itself. Um, and so the aversion to creeds, I heard somebody one time, it's a, a historian one time, Brad, they said congregationalism is as American as apple pie. <laughs> um, and what they meant, you know, obviously is that dem- that democracy, it's not just our government. It's it's what we want in a church mm-hmm. um, and Baptists. Um, you know, the Baptist faith has often been called uh, the democratic religion. In fact, there's a book um, by my uh, former Baptist history professor. Um, now the dean at Southern. Also, Paul Sanchez's supervisor, his name is escaping me right now. Uh, he wrote he wrote the, the biography for Southern Seminary. Uh, oh, my gosh. Brad, uh, Paul is going to kill me. Uh, what is his name? Oh, what is his name? He's my Baptist history professor. Anyway, he is now the dean of the School of Theology at Southern, uh, who was formerly Russell Moore. What is his name? Anyway, um, he has a book called The Democratic Religion uh, and how Baptists, um, you know, we love our we love our democracy and our government. We love our democracy in our church polity. And so all that to say, I believe that there that democratic spirit that exists in Baptist churches often um, comes and rubs against and has friction with creeds um, because it's really you know, democracy and the right of the people. Um, a lot of times political democracy and freedom. Uh, a lot of times we, in our churches, especially Baptist churches, we misinterpret that for hermeneutical freedom. Hmm. Uh, and, I, and, and, and we want to just say, you know, you know, even Martin Luther was talking about how the common man can, through the spirit, interpret the scriptures. Well, that can obviously be abused. Um, and I think creeds, for the for the person who is hasn't come face to face with heresy or doesn't know what heresy is, um, or for the person who doesn't really understand what Orthodox Christianity is, mm. a creed seems less like a fence to keep the wolves out and more like a jail cell. Mm. Um, and uh, I just think that's naivety. 
Um, I think history bears itself out that, I mean, I think the book of Galatians, for example, bears itself out that it doesn't take Christianity very long for there to be anathema in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, uh, creeds, the reason creeds have so much friction in Baptist churches is because of that populist democratic spirit that exists in Baptist life. Local church autonomy, um, you know, the, the, there's good things to that. But if it isn't tempered with a proper sense of authority, especially scriptural authority. Um, and by the way, parentheses, I think that's why Baptist churches have a problem with elders. Uh, <laughs> because of that, because of that, you have deacons who want to run churches. Uh, and because of that, you have people who want to get a who want to abolish creeds because you see you see these these institutions that are, you know, because even there's confessions, there's creeds in, in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's in Michael Haken, if he were ever possibly listening to this podcast, which I don't think he would, but if he was, he would be amening me right now because confessions and creeds are, are, are biblical in the sense that they're, the church is constantly harkened back to how do we ground our faith? How do we, how can we minimally define what we believe as Christians uh, so that we can be all on the same page. And eventually we know that in Constantinian terms as the council of Nicaea, Constantinople, um, Ephesus and Chalcedon. So uh, but that, and I just want to say one more thing. That's why the church is so ignorant of the ecumenical creeds. Mm. Uh, today, Baptists think that ecumenical creeds are just Catholic creeds. Mm-hmm. Um, no, they're not Catholic. And, and dare I say, until 1517, we're all Catholic. Um, <laughs> you know, that there's a lot to be said about going back to um, the early church councils and learning about what it means to be Christian. Uh, and then and so I think if we if we go back there, we're not so scared of confessions when we see them today, because they're really accomplishing trying, to, even though creeds and confessions are different. They're still trying to accomplish a similar goal, um, mm-hmm. and that's really, you know, what Paul is trying to teach Timothy. I mean, it just you know, guard guard against false teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, that's that's my rant on uh, Baptists and why we don't like authority. So no, I I love it because by the way, I totally agree with you. And even in my own understanding, there's coming a realization that just because there's a a confession or a catechism of faith that doesn't mean that doesn't equate to um catholicism <laughs> and at first it's almost like um in my upbringing it's like whoa 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 what are you doing with that creed there don't be getting all catholic on me but <laughs> just like what you said is that it's not a a a cage to keep you in it is a fence to keep heresy out and I yeah. think realizing that that's when you realize and you can embrace a confession or a creed much more wholeheartedly because it points you back to, as as Paul says over and over again in 1 Timothy, the sound doctrine of the gospel, and which is what I think he was trying to get the he was trying to get across to Timothy. Um, but the other thing that you said, which is very um, close to me, because I've had the again the similar similar thoughts is is this is is was coming out, quote-unquote, slightly reformed, um, because... Um, it, I want to know how reformed you are. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's funny you should ask that, because I, I think... Um, Maybe another podcast. 
Yeah. Nowadays, it's almost like the thing to do to be a Reformed theologian. And not that there's anything wrong with Reformed theology, but just in my understanding of Scripture and the Gospel, uh, I'm not, you know, uh, a five-point Calvinist by any stretch of the imagination. But I do have a rich uh, affection for the Reformers and what they did and what they have done for the faith. And I think some of it is a little misunderstood. But anyways, uh, I just... How have you come to sort of that um, juncture where you would call yourself, quote unquote, slightly reformed? Um, because that's kind of where I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one, where I'm at uh, in my church context, especially Southern Louisiana, which is a real just divided. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the Southern Baptist Convention itself, uh, in many ways, um, is 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 really continuing that kind of dialogue. Um, I'm obviously the biggest proponent in Calvinists and non-Calvinists getting together, working together. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's um, you know, like you just talked about confessions. I mean, I have a lot of I have buddies down here who think because I don't uphold to the 1689 London confession that I'm not truly a reformed Baptist, <laughs> um, you know, and I, because I'm, I'm not a Sabbatarian, I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that on the reverse side of that, I think there's a lot of people that just demonize Calvinists. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, if you're going to, you're going to throw out Calvinism historically. Let's, let's, I mean, I'm sorry. Let's get rid of Lottie moon. Um, <laughs> let's get rid of William Carey. Um, let's get rid of Charles Spurgeon. Let's get rid of David Platt. Let's get rid of Adoniram Judson. I mean, some of our best missionaries are Calvinists. I'm sorry. It's just, it's, it's a, it's an ignorance of history and theology. And, you know, a lot of Baptists today have been preyed upon by um, leaders uh, who just treat that term and use it for whatever they don't like in the church. Um, but that's why I don't tell people I'm a Calvinist. One, you know, as you just said, if we're going to define it in historical, most basic historical sense, and, and that being the Council of the, or the Senate of Dort, uh, I don't affirm lunar atonement in the classical sense. Um, you know, I, if, I, if someone were to say, well, how do you define it? Well, go read Andrew Fuller, and I think you'll give a better sense of how I, how I define that. By the way, Andrew Fuller is my favorite Baptist. Hmm. Um, founding secretary of the Baptist Missionary Society, um, and the man who sent William Carey. Charles Spurgeon said Andrew Fuller is the greatest theologian of his century. Hmm. Um, that that right there, boom. You know, um, I uh, And obviously I was just published in my very first book um, about five months ago, four months ago, um, Matthew Everhard, um, uh, who is a Presbyterian brother uh, in Florida, um, he, uh, maybe, maybe not too far from you. I'm not sure. Um, he is, uh, the, the, I guess the curator of Edward's studies and he was the co-editor and a contributor to the work. Uh, and actually my chapter was on, um, Jonathan Edwards legacy in missions and, and principally through Andrew Fuller, um, but back to your question about Calvinism. One, I don't, I don't claim to be a Calvinist. Uh, explicitly because it's a it's a ambiguous term. It, it shouldn't be. 
Let me, let me, let me clarify that. It isn't, but it, it can be. And because of that, I always want to be precise with my language. Um, there have been plenty of people in history to define what Calvinism is. Um, but for my pastoral context, I just take that word out. It just means too many things to too many people. Um, and, you know, when I was hired at Zorbabish Church, I told, I, I told my pastor, I said, I, I will not teach TULIP in, in this church. To, you know, I just, I don't. I have never taken my kids through TULIP because, one, I, I, I'm an expository preacher. Um, so I'm not, that's not my, my way that I believe that we should teach. Um, two, I believe everything we need to teach God's word is in God's word. Um, mm-hmm. and so, uh, that's my personal methodology. Um, and obviously there, even the people who teach TULIP, I don't think sometimes teach TULIP in the Dordian sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, you know, there are a lot of people that want to, uh, demonize Jacob, Jacobus Arminius. Uh, Jacobus Arminius affirmed person. Jacob, Jacobus Arminius affirmed total depravity. Um, you know, obviously he had prevenient grace. Uh, he he affirmed penal substitutionary atonement. He 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 affirmed. Um, you know, he he affirmed the passive and obedient, uh, active and passive obedience of Christ. Um, so, and even when we teach tulip, I think that we're we're committing anachronism when we think that a new, the, the, when we, when we think that tulip isn't attached to its own history and context, if you're going to teach tulip, teach Doherty and tulip. I mean, it's obviously the reason that they picked that is because that is the, 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 the flower of the Netherlands in, in Amsterdam. Um, but uh, secondly about, about Calvinism, I, even Steve Gaines, who's the current president of uh, Southern Baptist uh, Convention, who I guess beat out um, or was J.D. Greer conceded it or, or whatever. Um, J.D. Greer, Calvinist. Steve Gaines, who is by far not associated with Calvinism, even he came out and said, I'm a quote-unquote modified Calvinist. Um, so that term just means so many different things. Um, yeah. For me, I, I I can look people, and, and this this gets back to uh, to Jonathan Edwards. I like Jonathan Edwards. Um, I can say these two things. I believe God is absolutely sovereign. I believe the Bible says that God is absolutely sovereign above all things. Uh, that He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Um, I believe that He works all things for His good. I believe that God has His hand in every single thing that happens. Um, because he's absolutely sovereign, and I believe man has free will. Um, there, I believe God. I believe the Bible upholds human freedom. Now, obviously, the debate is what does that freedom mean? What kind of freedom is that? Well, that's 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 a, a debate, and I believe Edwards answers that in the freedom of the will. Um, but I believe that the Bible upholds absolute divine sovereignty and some kind of human freedom. Um, I think today in philosophical circles, they would call that compatibilism. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not a hard determinist, um, uh, but I'm not a, a libertarian, uh, or a soft libertarian or, or what have you like Steve Lemke at NOBTS. Um, so anyway, all that to say, um, I believe that people who uphold some kind of, of, human free will are not necessarily Armenians. 
Um, and I believe that people who uphold divine sovereignty are not necessarily Calvinists. If we capitulate those terms to mean just those things, we're not helping the conversation because we're just relegating people to labels and categories instead of having a, a nuanced conversation that we need to have. That's right. That's right. I, I totally agree with you. And I, I have had many of the same similar uh, thoughts and I've tried to come to the same, I think, understandings. And I think it's clear, you know, just in talking to you and I know you have a degree in history, but also you have a love for church history. And, um, I know also, and we'll get to in a second, you have a love for Jonathan Edwards, but um, let's start with the church history aspect, because um, why why do you think it's so important for the common Christian to have an understanding and a grasp of church history? And it, I think we've been touching on it already, but and why do you think it, it is so vital for that for them to have that? Um, man. Um, this is something I've, ri- I've, I've wrote, written a lot on. Um, I actually wrote an article um, for the Southern blog uh, about, I, I don't remember when, uh, the three reasons every pastor should read church history. Um, and a couple of the reasons I put are, uh, it's actually pinned, it's, it's my pinned tweet on Twitter. Um BTW. Um, but I, uh, a couple of the reasons that I put are uh, one, if you went up to somebody and you said, uh, you know, the triune God is three persons in one essence, what does that mean? You know, what does essence mean? Or, or, or dare I say, if one of these young reformed restless guys comes up and preaches to his church, you know, the homoousian God, I mean, what does that mean? Um, you know, there's language specifically, particularly regarding the Trinity, that's extra biblical. Um, doesn't mean it's unbiblical, um, but early the early church is, t- is trying to come to grips with the fact that how is Jesus Christ fully God, fully man, and how is the how is the one living God three and one? Um, and so you have a lot of extra biblical language. I mean, today that debate is still happening. Uh, perfect being theology or, um, you know, are, are these, are these, you know, even as, as uh, Adolf von Harnack would say, uh, is Paul just a Hellenized Jew? Um, are they just, are they just importing Plato? Uh, cause, cause, you know, I certainly don't see homoousios in the Bible. Um, you know, those kinds of questions. Um, if we have an understanding of church history, if we have an understanding of why those that language has developed in response to heresies, mm-hmm. uh, for example. If we have a, if we have an understanding of why the church has chosen to articulate those doctrines as they have, then we one we're not so prone to um, to place a negative connotation on theological words, uh, but two we we it gives us empathy and understanding uh, and wisdom when we. You know, as, as Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, there is nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is nothing, there's nothing the church, like, for example, I'm a discipling a young man on Wednesday afternoons. Uh, we're going through the book of Romans. This guy, less than two years ago, was dating a girl. I mean, she, you know, she, if he, as he would say, she was out of his league. She was pretty. And he didn't really stop to think about the fact that she was a part of the Jehovah's Witness Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
well, you know, I, I set him down and be like, man, you need to really start looking this up. And, you know, he, he basically took to Google. And then the next day he got to me, he's like, oh, my gosh, I'm dating a Neo-Aryan. Um, and so um, doctrine is important. And history helps us to understand why doctrine is important and how to wield doctrine Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I think if history has borne anything out, I mean, what is George Santayana's famous phrase? Uh, he who does not learn history is doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think, uh, I think I just butchered that, but, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the main kernel of truth there is that, uh, um, history has a way of repeating itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, all these things that pastors are, coming into contact with um it's been more or less it's been done before and it's been dealt with before and greater wiser smarter men than you and i uh have addressed it and that that's why i think even paul says there's a great cloud of witnesses um church history is the history of this great cloud of witnesses dealing with the very same bible the very same texts the very same problems and they can help us as pastors um, when dealing with different issues. And I, I just, I think we would, it's amazing to see um, how cyclical in some ways church history is uh, and human history is. Um, and so church history helps us to be more empathetic, more understanding, more patient, um, and, and helps us to understand the human, um, I guess, the, 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 it helps us understand human total depravity as well. That's true. Uh, anyway, that's, yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I think that a fascination of church history is, is very good because then you realize, kind of circling back, then you realize why those confessions were so important and why they wrote them in the first place. Because if you don't know why, then it just looks like, you know, again, it looks like a cage. But if you know why they were written, they were yeah. written for a specific reason in a specific time during uh, much um, uh, persecution on that church, on the church at large. And so I think understanding that, understanding the context of why Augustine wrote what he wrote or why Luther did what he did or and so on and so on, I think that gives us a proper, I think, in, not only a proper perspective, but I think it yeah. gives us a better affection for the gospel. Because, and and I think it grows out of that. Amen, brother. I, amen. I, that's why, well, you say Luther, I mean, the mighty fortress is our God. I mean, most people, most people think of Luther as bondage of the will, but, you know, Luther said, you know, he, he, he typical Luther, he made this embellished comment towards the end of his life in a letter. He said uh, he could burn every work he ever wrote except for bondage of the will and the children's catechism that he wrote. Mm. Um, and that's because it just shows me, one, uh, how much Luther loved teaching children. Um, <clears throat> but his hymnody, I mean, obviously, Mighty Fortresses Are God. Uh, and even the 95 Theses, if you read it, I mean, it's so gospel-centered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you, I, I'm so glad you, you said that. Uh, doesn't it give us a better sense of the value of the gospel in the lives of people? I mean, it's, it's historical devotion, really. 
Well, I wanted to ask you another question too, because I know you, you have a great love for Jonathan Edwards and his ministry and his writings. And, and so does Riley Voth too. <laughs> Shout out to Riley. Um, I think though that most of the time, uh, we have a very bad misunderstanding of Jonathan Edwards. I think yeah. we know um, <laughs> we know sinners in the hands of an angry God, and I think yeah. that's about it. And we think that he's this guy who was just, you know, not very compassionate or anything because we read that one sermon. We know, you know, we don't even really know that sermon. We just know third hand about what he said and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just there's a lot about Edwards that I think isn't true because no one has really taken the, taken the time to research and read on him. And I think um, just to talk towards that and why he's so misunderstood. Hmm. Um, I uh, wrote a blog last week on Edwards and revival. And uh, there's an exceptional quote um, by a Yale historian named Sidney Alstrom. Uh, he actually, Alstrom wrote an epic work, uh, History of the American People, um, History of the Religion of the American People. And, uh, I mean, it's like anytime you see it in a bookstore, I mean, you're just like, you just have to open it. It's just one of those books that you just like, and must have taken 30 years to write. Um, but it's, uh, this is actually not in that work, but he talks, he talks about what a travesty it is, um, that Edwards is known more for this imprecatory sermon that he wrote and he, and he, and he preached it to a congregation that wasn't even his own congregation. It was an infield Connecticut. Hmm. Um, and, and talks about how if we had a better understanding of the way that he shaped, he reshaped Puritan traditional theology um, with his notion of the spirit, with his notion of love, I will go down and I believe every Edwards scholar will tell you this. His central defining foundational doctrine is the doctrine of love. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's, that to me is the ultimate irony of it all. Uh, his best sermon. I don't know. That's, that's tough to say. Isn't it weird? I don't have a favorite sermon. They're all just so good. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't, you know what? I do have one. It's called the Excellency of Christ. If you ever, it is, it is in my mind the most Christocentric sermon of all time. Um, the Excellency of Christ is probably my favorite. I owe Tom Nettles, uh, Doctor Tom Nettles at Southern Seminary, for introducing me, making me read that sermon. Um, but you know, he has a sermon that's the. It's it's, it's called Heaven is a World of Love. The whole sermon is contrasting the disunity and the horror and the hatred of hell with the unity and love and self-emptying nature of heaven. Mm. Um, it, you know, it, it, it just to think about how, you know, because everybody wants to know what heaven is like, obviously. I mean, just look at, look at the religion rack at Barnes and Noble um, <laughs> And in heaven, and, and, and you know, a lot of, and then you have other people who are like, oh, we don't know, you know, no, no eye has seen, no, no ear has heard. Um, well, that's true, but you know, God tells us, or sorry, Paul in First Corinthians two, I believe, um, tells us obviously that we, you know, we're not going to know what heaven's like to the T. 
but we can deduce certain things about heaven um, from, for example, the parables of the kingdom. Mm. Um, and so Edwards, typical Edwards, he feels like he has license to speak um, in ways that maybe John Calvin did not, uh, whether it be the Trinity or what have you. And so he actually spends a whole sermon on heaven as a world of love. And I, I'm telling you, if people read that sermon, it was it would squash this stigma that Edwards has centers in the hands of an angry God. Now I'll be honest with you. I'm one of those people. I believe centers in the hands of an angry God is an, is an obviously an, an illustrative, wonderful masterpiece of um, eschatology and redemption and judgment and what have you. Uh, but it's pretty harsh. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and I mean, I'm going to try to be unbiased. There are times where Edwards just whips the, the you know, I mean, the snot out of those people at infield. Um, and, you know, but I think if we if we read sermons like Heaven is a World of Love or uh, God Glorified in Man's Dependence um, or The Excellency of Christ um, or, you know, for example, you know, other treatises like uh, The Surprising Work of the Spirit of God or Marks of the Surprising, yeah. Um, we would find that Edwards's doctrine of love to, to Edwards, and I don't want to get too deep in here because this is, I'm actually writing a, a paper right now uh, on Edwards's doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but you, I, people need to understand when they read Edwards. Edwards is taking. I mean, he's not exclusively so, but Edwards is taking an old psych, old, the traditional tr- Trinitarian model is what they call the psychological model from Augustine. Um, and in that psychological model, the basic notion of the Trinity is this. The father has a perfect idea of himself, and that's the son. He's the image. And then, so so God is perfectly pleased and well-pleased with himself. He loves himself infinitely because he's infinitely great, infinitely good. So when he looks on an image of himself, that perfect idea, he is well pleased. So there's infinite joy and delight between the Father and the Son. And so that that love between the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit. So for, so for Jonathan Edwards, the Holy Spirit is love. And I don't mean that the Holy Spirit causes love. Jonathan Edwards literally believed that love was the Holy Spirit. Um, and a lot of people critiqued him for that and say, well, that's kind of depersonifying the Holy Spirit. Um, but I, I think the reason that's important, the reason I include that is Edwards was incapable of talking about the triune God without talking about love. Hmm. Um, and that just just destroys this modern notion that he was just this angry Puritan who was writing scarlet letters on people forever. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, that's uh, that's one of the reasons I love Edwards is because obviously he upholds the sovereignty of God. Obviously, he's a Puritan. Uh, obviously, he is the foundational. He is America's theologian. He's the most influential American thinker, religious American thinker ever. Um, but he's so loving. I mean, he, he's incapable of talking about theology without love. And that's that's why that's why I love him. So. Oh, awesome. I love hearing that. I like hearing that from a guy I, I feel who knows knows a lot about him. Um, because I, just being honest, I, I haven't read much of Edwards, and so I would lump myself in that stupid colloquial knowledge of him. 
Um, so, so are you saying that you haven't ever read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God to your, like, to, <laughs> young, to young Lydia? <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, I haven't done that yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I do, I do want to interject. I don't, my wife, if she were here right now, sorry, I'm plugging up my computer. Um, if my wife were here right now, she would say, she would say, Brad, I don't read Jonathan Edwards. So she's, it's, it's not like I've had people come over our house and try to have like extensive, deep theological conversations in life. And she can hold her own. Don't get me wrong. That girl's, she has taught me theology, Mm. Um, but it's my wife. And we, when we come home, I mean, we talk about like big bang theory and like, (laughs) uh, you know, talk about stupid stuff and uh, obviously the, the word, but we're not talking about, you know, I don't lean over to my wife and be like, baby, what's, uh, you know, are you infralapsarian or superlapsarian? You know, there's no, we don't do that. Uh, and I think that's a testament to the fact that my wife is awesome and we can talk about other things than that. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> so um, besides Edwards, what are some other um, books or, or historical figures in church history that have sort of impacted you or influenced you the most? Um, hmm. well, Andrew Fuller, um, Andrew Fuller has been called in some ways the Baptist Edwards. Um, and I think that's true in a lot of ways. He, he, he re, he re tools Edwards for a Baptist setting. Um, so John, I, mean, I have the complete works of, of Andrew Fuller at my house or at my, my, my study, my office in church. Um, the Puritans, um, the Puritans are, you know, I just love the Puritans. I mean, I, I, people need to read less about the Puritans and they need to just read the Puritans. <laughs> um, that. that is a, there is an excellent, um, C.S. Lewis uh, writes the, the 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 introduction to um, a copy of Athanasius's um, on the Incarnation, and it is one of the best words I have ever read on why we should go to church history and read people. Um, and C.S. Lewis, he makes this comment. He says, most of his students, and of course C.S. Lewis was a teacher, he said, most of his students think are so afraid of Plato because they've read so many guys talking about Plato that they're just convinced that Plato is just really hard to read and they never understand him. When they, in fact they go and read Plato, they find out that Plato is easier to read than the people talking about Plato. <laughs> um and, and I think a lot of people are afraid of the Puritans or just church history figures because they're, they're reading men with doctors next to their name and they go, man, if this guy's this hard, I bet this, you know, the actual primary sources are just obscure. When that, in fact, isn't the case. I mean, I, I, I you know... First of all, Baptists, anyone calling themselves Baptists in America, that you know they got to have a little homespun colloquial language. I mean, Baptists, for, for example, Baptists, for the, I mean, the, 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 for the longest time, 
are just trying to get a seminary. I mean, they're just trying to get an education. Um, you know, it's it's that backwoods religion. Um, but Puritans, you know, for example, I guess what I'm trying to say is not all Puritans are like John Owen. Um, <laughs> John Owen is the standard for theological obscurity. Um, now, the problem is what John, John Owen had to say was so marvelous and so spot on that everybody needs to read him because he, he is rightfully called the, the English Calvin. Um, but anybody who knows Owen knows that there is some, there is some merit to the, the, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an idea. And I think it's true. A lot of people say that Owen knew Latin better than English. Mm. Uh, and because of that, he wrote in English like Latin and that people can't read him. But I think that I think people need to understand when you read the Puritans, a lot of times reading the Puritans themselves is the best thing because you're going, you know, I can read this, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and I think also, and here's, here's a point. I actually steal language from the Puritans. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I, I joke about this and I'm going to need to qualify this in case somebody like takes this out of context and, and uses it against me one day. <laughs> but I always jokingly say tongue in cheek, that every, you know, every good pastor is a plagiarizer. Um, yeah. and, and obviously I don't mean go on the internet and steal a sermon. But what I do mean is, brother, you know as well as I do, every good sermon, you're either quoting somebody, going to somebody. I mean, how can you read, how can I, how can I listen to a John Piper sermon on the same text that I'm getting ready to preach and not go, hmm, I, need, I think I need to listen to what he's saying about that. You know, I think uh, steering it back to church history, I think we can, it's, not, it's important not just to digest the ideas of our favorite theological heroes. It's also important to see how they articulate those ideas. Mm -hmm. um, puritanical language is... I mean, read, read, uh, I mean, obviously the reformers, it's, it's a book from the reformers, but read the Valley of the Vision and tell me that the language they're using, you're, you're not just like, oh my gosh, this is just pure devotion. Mm. Um, it's the language of the Bible, but it's, it's, it's more than that as well in some ways. So I, I, um, I don't, I know I haven't really answered your question. I, I have, I have heroes. I mean, Augustine's my hero. Um, you know, somebody who I haven't read as much as people would probably think is C.S. Lewis. Hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think who my... I have favorite historians. Um, but um, if anybody wants to read history, you better, you better... You better... If you have to... If you take church history seriously there are certain names that you have to read. Um, like, for example, I'm reading um, part of, I mean, he's got a whole set, and I've read part of it, but I haven't ever read it all the way through, is a Yaroslav Pelican's uh, History of Christian Doctrine. Uh, so I guess I, I'm, I, I recognize that primary sources and secondary sources are important. Um, but obviously my, my passion is for even American evangelical history. Um, and, um, 
because of that, I, I really try to, my, I think, you know, Thomas Kidd, I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Kidd at the Gospel Coalition. Thomas Kidd is, not only is he a fantastic historian who, who studied under the master George Marsden, I'm not sure if you know that name, um, but not only is he a brilliant historian out there at Baylor, but Thomas Kidd is really, he is modeling how to do history for me, um, not just with his writing, but he writes blogs, he writes articles, he is on podcasts. I mean, most times when you hear church historian, I mean, it's like you think of like cobwebs. Um, <laughs> you know, like this guy's, you know, I think him and Justin Taylor and all these guys, they're getting people excited about church history. Mm. Um, and that's really what I want to do. And I think, you know, you as well, exciting people about history not just showing them how relevant it is, but showing them how uh, devotional uh, history can be and how gospel centric the, the, yep. the uh, you know history can be as well. That's awesome. That's and I don't. And I also want to mention John Calvin. Um, <laughs> I'm actually. Um, it looks like I'm going to be contributing a, a, an article on John Calvin to uh, um, the Gospel Coalition's. Um, forthcoming issue of Thamelios. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that journal. Um, they have a, um, this year they have a couple issues coming out in, 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 fa- in honor of the Re- Reformation. Uh, and I just wrote, an, uh, or they just approved one of my um, uh, articles that I wrote on John Calvin. I spent last semester in my doctrine or doctrine of the reformers seminar. And uh, man, I had to read all the way through the institutes and I'm telling you, man, like, wow. Calvin's Calvin's good. I mean, he's just, I don't, I, you know what? And, and Dr. Harwood, who's my, of course, like I said, he's my doc, uh, doctoral supervisor, definitely not a Calvinist. And obviously would disagree with Calvin on many things, but even Dr. Harwood was like, man, Harwood is, or Calvin is good. I mean, he, he just loved to read him. I mean, he was just so, such a biblicist. Yeah. Um, he, he, and anyone who compares, you know, Calvin to Edwards, you know, if I'm having a conversation with, you know, a young guy who's saying, yeah, I wrote Calvin Edwards, you know, they both blah, blah, blah. I sometimes want to listen because because anyone who knows anything about church history knows that, yes, Calvin and Edwards are both awesome and both the Reformed and whatever, but those are very two different people, very two different thinkers. Um and uh, that's another reason I love church history is it, it's a testament to the multifaceted kingdom of God and how many different kinds of people uh, attest to the grace of, of Jesus. So. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's sort of shift gears because I want to talk, um, talk about writing. Uh, we both you know, have a, a great love to write, and you are turning out some great stuff. And You as well, my friend. Well, thank you. Um, it, why is it I know you've you've written a blog about this I know you have because I've read it <laughs> but why is it so important for not only a pastor but why is it important for young pastors to write and before you answer your question I'll sort of well I'll let you answer the question why is it so important for young pastors budding young pastors or ministers or thinkers to write um yeah I did I did write on that. Um, trying to think of all the points that I talked about. Um, you know, I had a I had a friend of mine 
this week, actually. I won't give his name. Um, he is a, a dear brother and uh, in many ways a better, a better writer than I am. But he doesn't write as frequently as I do. Um, and he, he said, just jokingly, of course, but he said, I had just posted another article on Edwards. And he said, dude, save all your stuff for, for, the, for the journals, for the journal <laughs> articles, for the books, you know. And one, what I wanted to say is, brother, they ain't, the, you know, these publishers ain't, you know, stomping down my door like they are you. So don't, I mean, don't, don't think I have, you know, crossway on, on speed dial. <laughs> um, but two, because this, this guy is, this guy is, is, I'm just, you know, I could, I wish there were another hundred of this, this dear brother. Um, but, you know, what I told him, what I said was, uh, brother, that's how I think. That's how I cultivate ideas. That's how I worship. Um, and I know that's true for you. Um, it's, it, there's this, there's a misconception that, and my wife kind of understands this as well. My wife, by the way, is the one who introduced me to writing. Mm. Uh, I made fun of her. I don't know if she can hear me right now. She's might be in the other room, but, uh, I made fun of my wife. And when I say made fun, I'm just poking at her, but I poked it, you know, a lot. She would, she was a blogger. Um, and I would always poke fun at her about how she would always blog. And, you know, in, in, in here, in, you know, in the end, she showed me, introduced me to my love of writing. I, I mean, it, it is, it is no embellishment whatsoever to say uh, that I would not write today had it not been for my wife. Mm. Uh, there she is. <laughs> she came in at the very end to hear the compliments. That's good. <laughs> um, but uh, the, um, um, but anyway, what I was saying was there's a misconception that suddenly just because someone writes, it means they have every thought in their head before they start writing. <laughs> um, and you and I both know that's just not true. Mm -hmm. Um, it writing is not just therapeutic and cathartic. It's also an engine for theological and spiritual thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that's why that's one of the reasons one of the main reasons I love writing is because it not only fosters critical biblical thinking um, because I'm putting those words and those thoughts in order um, but it also it's also a form of spiritual worship for me mm. um, you know you you know as well as I do Brad after you get done re after you get done writing a, an article um, you, you want to sit back and go any good article makes you sit back and go, how great is our God? Yep. Um, and uh, then there's the added bonus. And that's, that's the, that's the spiritual and the theological and the doxological part of it. Um, but I'll tell I, you, know, let's talk about the practical implications. I would never have met you, Brad, had it not been for writing. Yeah, that's true. I know. Um, I would never have met Matthew Everhard um, in Florida must be you Florida guys, man. I must be just I'm I'm you, you guys are helping me out a lot, you know. Just just uh, with your friendship and but I would never have met Matthew, and of course, if I'd never met Matthew, I never would have been in my first book. Um, and 
And so I think, and then local pastors here and local brothers, I would never would have met them had it not been for my writing. Um, writing today, and I think this gets back to what we were talking about earlier. <coughs> there is a there is a small little renaissance going on with the world of blogging um, and the exchange of Christian ideas. I mean, Gospel Coalition, I think, is one of them, just the masters of of digital print. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm saying, I thank God for what they're doing, but it's also a way to network, um, uh, and, and meet new people. Yep. Um, and then, you know, as well as I do, man, that's, I mean, Riley, I've never even met you or Riley. Um, I really want to, I really want to meet you, but I want to meet Riley too. Riley seems like a really unique kind of guy. Um, he's got his like surfer hair. Um, but he's like super theological and smart yet. He's like, he's really gifted at computers and like the digital stuff. And, but yet he's also working at apparently Midwestern seminary, I think. Um, I mean, the dude has a lot of hats and then you, I mean, you're a pastor, you're a father, you're writing. You're the only guy I know out there who writes more than me. (laughs) Um, and so I'm just, you guys, I'm, I'm so honored to know you and hope to obviously meet you someday. But I, 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 I really credit the Lord, obviously, but credit writing um, to making that happen and building that bridge. Well, and that's the fun aspect of it. That, really quick to go back, because the same thing with me is that I, I, it's no small thing to say that besides just my devotion in the Bible, but writing is the singular most formative thing in my own sort of spiritual and theological discovery is is writing and you know i can read these books and i'm reading a lot uh like as you i my favorite guys to read are horatius bonar and octavius winslow those guys i go back to all the time they're very devotional and very practical and thinking through that stuff is only done as i write i i think there's a misconception i think a lot of times that bloggers are sort of um they want self-adulation and self, you know, they want attention. But for me, blogging isn't about, you know, people reading my stuff. It's about me <laughs> thinking through something and being able to learn something about the grace of God grace that I've not discovered before. And I think, yeah. that, I think that's where it is. That's it where it is. Amen. Amen. But going back to writing, um, it, as I said, it's it's helped shape me and shape my understanding of the Bible. Um, I think, in, in as you said, you're getting to know these other people, and I'm helping out with some other blogs, and you know, I'm meeting these other guys from other denominations and other you know stripes of faith, so to speak, and that's helped shape my own understanding, realizing that it how I always maybe think what the Bible says, it's not always that way or this interpretation, learning from that. And, you know, I've learned so much from the guys at Christ Old Fast and my Lutheran brothers and the way that they have, you know, distinct- are, they, are they Lutheran? Yeah. Yeah. It's predominantly Lutheran. And Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Sorry yeah. to cut you off. I, I didn't know that. No, it's, it's okay. <laughs> but and learning from their, you know, distinction of law and gospel, which is so basic to them, which is something that I have never, I hadn't ever really considered before I got involved with those guys. And so that type of stuff is why I love writing and love learning about writing and trying to form my thoughts better and think through scripture better. Because I think that's where discipleship is, is thinking through 
the aspects of God, the attributes of God. And in doing that in writing is the most practical way for me to do that. <laughs> yeah, man, that's, uh, it, it really is a way like you, like you just said, uh, to really work through ideas in your head and to absorb. Cause I think hearing the echo of other voices out there and collaborating with them and mm. engaging them, it, it helps you to really, um, like, as you said, not only understand your own position, but to kind of have that internal dialectic, if you will, where you're, mm. you're, you're having a dialogue with yourself and with the Lord. <laughs> and, um, mm. uh, I don't know where are they, are they based out of somewhere or? Place. They have guys okay. everywhere. <laughs> well, like Majesty's men, then, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and speaking of, and just um, that's a good segue. As sort of we close, um, the Majesty's men, the heart of the Majesty's men is young young men, and and teaching them and helping disciple them to love the Lord Jesus and to grow in that love of the Lord Jesus. And so, I like to ask this question: If you were were given an audience of young men and allowed to say one thing to them, what Ooh. would that one thing be? Wow. Um, <clears throat> I would say we need to pastors, not just pastors, Christians today. We need to, be relentless in our presentation and pursuit of the gospel. Mm. Um, and when I say relentless, what I mean is in every single, we, we, we have to, we have to face the, the risk of someone telling us that we're being too redundant with the same gospel. <laughs> um, that is a, uh, uh, it's just amazing to me. And the reason I say that is nine times out of 10, 99 times out of a hundred, no one's really going to say that because today in today's modern church climate, um, the man who stands up for the gospel and is redundant in his constant, relentless, consistent presentation of, um, of the love of Jesus Today, that's that's kind of a novelty, mm. um, and there's a there's a beautiful. I think I think my message would be this: Let's simplify our ministry and let's simplify our worship. Mm. Um, I think we've complicated things, um, and that's a conversation we're having at Zoll Baptist Church right now about you know what do we really need? Uh, you know the the flood. Our whole community was flooded. Uh, and we had over half of our people at our church were flooded and lost their homes to flood. Mm. And um, those kinds of conversations, by God's grace, I'll say this, if this is a, you know, this is a radical statement here, but by God's grace, we were flooded. Mm. Um, because I think he showed us, I went three months without my family, Brad. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife, you know, our children were not, they weren't two months old. Um, and we didn't have anybody to help us. And we certainly didn't have a house. And my, my wife went back up to Kentucky and um, 
her parents and my parents helped raise helped her raise the the twins while I went and you know rebuilt our home and and, and I, not about me the point being whether it was our house whether it was appliances whether it was clothes whether it was church programs whether it was whatever it 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 brought us back to what is superfluous in my life and what is absolutely essential mm. And I think that I think that a sim not simplistic, but a simple message of the gospel and a simple ministry that seeks to gather people in a community as tightly as they can around one message and one faith, one Lord, um, one spirit. If, if if gathering people around one gospel as simple and as tightly as you can, um, that will never get old. Mm. And um, that's really been what God has that that that's the lesson I would love to teach uh, right now. The word that I have for for young Christians and young pastors, because that's the that's the lesson God's really taught me in the last uh, six to eight months. Because um, it's amazing what we think we need and and that's another reason why i love missions i mean it's obviously i hate it when somebody you know i come home or somebody comes home from a mission trip and hey what god teach it man we're just so lucky that's i mean if i had a dime um you know i hope god taught you something more than that <laughs> um but but there is truth in that uh, it's amazing when we go over to third world, doesn't matter if it's Haiti or Honduras or Africa or India, wherever, God really reveals to us how much we have that we really made a part of church that we really don't need to make part of church. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, like those guys, those 1689 guys, they think that that's what consists of true biblical worship. Let's make sure we don't make peripheral things the main thing hmm. um and um you know i think that uh that would be probably my message is just to to keep the gospel at the center in every single thing that we do um so that would that would probably be my uh my advice for for young pastors and young christians amen and amen thank you uh for that abby thanks for coming on the show um, with that, we'll close. I, we went a little long, but uh, we could probably go a little longer. So we'll have to save that for next time. <laughs> thank you, Brad. Thank you for, I mean, thank you. This is my first podcast I've ever done, ever. Well, you and passed with flying colors, my friend. Good deal, man. It, isn't it a testament to the Spirit of God that a guy in West Palm Beach and a guy in Baton Rouge – a Bob Joneser and a Kentucky boy, you know, <laughs> could come together uh, and just talk about the glory of God in history and the gospel. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I thank you for your, for your friendship. I mean, you just, you, I hope I'll meet you one day. I don't know. I'd probably be at a conference of some kind if I had to say. <laughs> probably will. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but please, I know this is, this is a, my interview, but I would love to just say to you, um, please continue writing. Um, and, uh, if I could give one advice to you, Brad, it would be this is somebody, and I mean that you're the only guy I know who writes more than me. 
Um, another thing you've invited, you've, you've introduced me to people that I didn't even know, like Chad Bird, whoever Chad Bird is, man, that, that guy can write. Uh, that guy, I had no idea who he was. Shout uh, out to Chad Bird, my man. Yeah, Love that guy. Yeah, yeah, he would just come up with the craziest titles. That was the first thing I noticed about him. Like his <laughs> titles were nuts. Then like he would have nice, neat little, you know, then I noticed that I'd actually click on them. And then, you know, he'd have those neat little pictures. And then uh, then he was just, the way he thinks, uh, you can tell that he, he, he understands people and he's around people, but he's also reading his Bible a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, uh, so that testament to that, but if I could give you a piece of advice, Brad, um, as a, as a father, and I'm not saying that I've, you know, I haven't even reached nine months. Um, but man, fatherhood has lent a perspective and a weightiness to my writing that I did not have before I was a father. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, in some ways, some ways, I mean, obviously the, it, this would be in the eye of the beholder, but um, in some ways I feel like I write more about ultimate things and less about, um, you know, ancillary things. Um, I, I, bec- because I'm a father, I feel like I'm now focused upon things that I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would just, I was, I would please, please just let the spirit guide you um, and I think, and honestly, I think your last post or your second to last or whatever was about fatherhood. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. So please, please, please continue to seek that out and, and spread your wisdom, brother, because there's a lot of, a lot of guys right now who know, um, you know, what super lapsarianism is, but they don't know how to love a woman and take care of a child. Ooh. Yeah. Well, we could talk a lot about that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Abby, thanks, and uh, you enjoy your evening. Thanks, Brad. And thanks again to Abby for taking the time to come on the show today and share his passion for history and the gospel. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and check out his blog, Vernacular. You can find those links in the show notes. And that's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded. Thanks so much for listening along. If you like what you just heard, be sure to follow the show on Twitter. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Thanks again also for the Christian Standard Bible for being our the show's sponsor. And thank you, as always, for listening and commenting and subscribing. I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings.